I believe that the, the resources, the lunar resources might be used to build, for example, an infrastructure on lunar surface and potentially allow to produce fuel for missions which go farther, like for Mars. I do not believe that the resources found on Moon will be used as terrestrial resources or will replace terrestrial resources. Hello, Space Watchers, and welcome back to another episode of Space Cafe Radio. This is our third episode dedicated to Artemis 1, the first one of a set of missions that should take us back to the Moon. We opened the Artemis special series speaking about the program in general, then we discussed the SLS, which is the mega rocket that NASA built specifically for Artemis 1, and today we're going to explore the European Service Module, a unique piece of equipment the NASA commissioned specifically to the European Space Agency. Think about this. This is the first time in history that NASA commissioned a fundamental part of a mission to an external agency, to someone else that is not NASA or an American company. So I call ESA and ask them to explain us why the service model is so important and what is at stake here. Today's guest is Nico Detman. Nico is the group leader for Lunar Exploration Development Projects at ESA's European Space Research and Technology Center in Nordwijk, in the Netherlands. Thanks a lot for being with me today. Welcome to Space Cafe Radio. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? I'm okay. So how is the, the mood in the lab? I was wondering, since we are uh, getting close to the launch of Artemis 1. Well, it's very, very exciting. You can imagine having started this activity in 2011, the teams are getting very excited. God, it's a long journey, isn't it? Is it your first lunar mission, this one? That's the first lunar mission, yeah. Wow, so you're excited too. Yeah, I've been mission manager for some uh, <laughs> missions to the ISS, but Luna is a new perspective and it's uh, not only farther, but also more exciting from several other reasons. Were you around in 69 when there's been the first historical? Well, you, you won't believe it, but I personally believe this is one of the first personal memories I have. I can say it at that point in time, I was four years old and I... I'm convinced I remember that I see myself running around excitedly in front of the TV and my parents were explaining to me what, what historical event was happening. I didn't grasp it, but it looked very Of course. No, no, it's a landmark. I met so many people that told me exactly like, like that. You know, I was a child, but I could perceive the importance of the moment. You see, I missed it completely and I felt that my generation got deprived by something so important. So I feel kind of Artemis is going to give me back something. At least you have the advantage of being young. That's now. the only one. <laughs> if you're younger, you can experience more what will happen actually in the future. That is true. That is true. So what is ASA doing on the moon? What is your, what's ASA long-term project for the moon? Well, first of all, we have, let's say, started this cooperation with, with NASA with a long-term perspective, as you know, um, we are delivering a service module, which is uh, one of the elements of the OR. So, which means we are actually very proud that we have been selected by, by another for this undertaking because we are on the critical path. That means no service module, no Orion mission, no Artemis mission. I think we, we have deserved it becoming a partner because we have proven in a long standing cooperation with, with NASA that we are a reliable partner. 
And we have also demonstrated our technical expertise through the ATV missions to the ISS, uh, that we have this capability and that we are a reliable partner. So NASA also said it, like this is the first time we are giving such an important part to a non-American partner. And I know ESA has built the European surface model. Can you walk us through, through it? What is it? How is it made? What's its role in Artemis first? Well, the, the service module is also called the powerhouse because it's uh, not only providing the electrical power, but it has also a quite uh, complex propulsion system. So it propels actually the crew module on its way to the moon, but also to, to return it from the lunar orbit to, to ground, to Earth, before it's eventually separated and it's only the crew module which is coming uh, back to Earth. But it's not only the powerhouse, it also provides all the consumables which are needed by the crew, like uh, water, gas, oxygen, nitrogen. And it yeah, provides the power and it also provides some um, thermal control for the crew module. In that respect, it is um, the essential part to Let's say, keep crew alive. So you have water, fuel, oxygen, nitrogen, everything. Yeah, okay. So it's like a sort of train engine and an incubator that basically lets people live inside Orion and it pushes it towards the moon. How much uh, fuel he has? It's about eight tons. Okay. But it's, diff it's different fuels. It's so-called hypergolic mm -hmm. propellants. It's MMH and NTO2. So they react in contact. They don't need to be ignited. It's a quite cl classical rocket yeah. propulsion propellant which is used eight tons is, uh, how many cars uh, can you fill with that it depends on your car but <laughs> yeah. my car it would be probably 100 okay, cars okay 100 cars more or less and then you have enough water so to sustain the four well, well the, the mission is built to uh, support missions up to 21 days okay. with a total crew of four okay so if I recall correctly it's about 300 liters yeah makes sense it's three liters each more or less per day for 20 days. And it took 10 years to be built. Yeah, we started in uh, 2011. We call, we started so with a, what we call the phase zero, phase A. What is interesting is that um, actually NASA started initially on its own as a pure national program. And only a bit later, we actually recognized what are the advantage of doing it together. Because you are, let's say, yeah, you're having less risk and less cost if you can build on a heritage. And actually, the ATV propulsion module is, I wouldn't say, it's by, far, by far not identical. But the heritage you can use from there was definitely recognized as a big uh, risk mitigation okay. and also cost mitigation. So it was a clear win-win situation for both parties to enter in this In this partnership. And how much it costs? I'm asking you this just to get a, a gauge of all parts of the Artemis yeah, The development cost of the service module, including the delivery of the first module, was about 650 million euro. Mm -hmm. Today, we have a contract uh, with, uh, in total, six service modules. So the total contract value of that is about 2 billion. This also includes a number of changes which have already been implemented. And we are actually about to send another request for a proposal to our prime contractor Airbus in the next days to procure another three service module, which then actually would make it up to ESM 9. So these ESMs, um, they will pay off the ESA obligation we have in the ISS program until 2030 about. 
but uh, those nine I, uh, those nine service modules will also let's say pay at least three seats of European astronauts flying to the moon. So um, the destination could be uh, the lunar gateway or the lunar surface, um, which is by the way fully in line with sure. the agenda of the ESA Director General, the so-called Agenda 25 to have a European citizen walking on the moon be before the end of this decade. Finally. So there is more than one service model. You are already looking beyond Artemis 1. Yeah, hey, we, we, have, we have already delivered two service modules to uh, Kennedy Space Center. We have a third one, which is currently under production in Bremen. And there are another uh, six which are under contract and where the procurement is on because of course the service models doesn't come back on earth it burns before no, so you need a new not, one every mission yeah yeah okay. it's expandable it's not reusable what is the the most fragile or complex component of the service model the one that you like do not touch it let's hope we stay together let's hope it doesn't break Well, there is, there is one component where we have to take care a lot, which is uh, the solar away wing of ah, the yes, service Yes, of course, module. because there's panels outside. Yes, yeah. solar panels. And, and these panels are also very special and actually something which doesn't exist on anything, on any other spacecraft, at least I know. What is very special about uh, those panels is they are driven by a so-called solar array driving mechanism, which has two degree of freedom, mm -hmm. which means once a panel is deployed, normally every spacecraft can turn the panel and uh, around its axis. But on the service module, you can actually also tilt them against and towards the flight direction. Ah, okay. and, 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 and so it has two degree of freedom. So why is this is made? In order to withstand the loads when the upper rocket stage is ignited, we have to tilt them down so against the, uh, it's against the flight direction in order to withstand the loads. But once the Orion service module main engine is ignited, we have to tilt them against the flight direction to avoid that the plume of the engine can either pollute or even burn, burn the solar array wings. So it looks a bit funny because in some flight configurations, they are kind of hanging down. And in some flight configurations, they are kind of uh, lifted up. And this is, let's say, a solar array ring operation, which is um, very unusual for any other space. They look like, be, I saw the full-blown image when they're all out. There are four of them, right? Yes. Okay, and how correct. long they are? I think the total span width is about 22 20 meters. meters. They look they're like a gigantic deployed. windmill to me. How much they can? How much electricity they can produce? I think it was 20, I would have to check. I think it's 22 kilowatts. Um, I have to check it again. I'm not sure about the figure. A couple of small houses, something like this, they could power. Yeah. Okay, okay. And so that's the probably the most fragile, edgy part. That's correct. Did you guys had a moment when you were building it during this long 10 years period when you were like, We're not going to make it. This is not going to get done. Like, did you ever hit a wall that you thought, we don't know how to resolve this problem? Well, it would be obviously not true if I say we never had <laughs> issues. We actually had quite a lot. But I must admit, there was never a point where I doubted that we will make it. So, for example, we had a, we had a big headache with a specific valve development. We were reusing a valve which was used in the space shuttle program. 
So we were trying to build on the heritage, but we were using this valve at much different operating conditions. So higher pressure, faster opening and closing speed, lower temperatures, lower leak rate requirements. And I must say we had to, let's say, put our best engineers on it in order to get the issue solved and to get the production with reliable results. I already mentioned the, the solar array drive mechanism, which is a very complex part where we also, let's say, had some difficulties to overcome. And eventually you have to understand the propulsion module consists of a total number of 33 engines with three different types of engines. And they are all pressurized with the same pressurization system. And to test, let's say, all the different working conditions um, when those 33 engines operate in their different modes was quite a challenge. We had a, what is kind of propulsion qualification module, which we tested in the NASA test facilities in White Sands, New Mexico. Yes, we got uh, some surprises during testing. We even had one engine, it was a 220 Newton engine, where we have 24 from which actually broke. So we really had a burn through. But this is the reason why we are testing. Of course, right? so yeah, yeah, yeah. Those things are so complex. Obviously, another thing which was not on our agenda is, is COVID, right? We, we cannot uh, also, COVID didn't help the schedule. I'm still very impressed in the hindsight how disciplined and motivated the teams have overcome the restrictions with almost no schedule impact. This was really impressive and was just another demonstration of what teams can achieve if they have a, object, a common objective in front of them. How big is your team? Well, it's a, it's a difficult... Okay, the ESA team is easy to answer. We have a project team of about 20 people. We are supported by probably uh, another... 40 to 60 people which work not full-time. These are experts. We ask them to join us. So we are working in a, in a matrix organization. The industry, only the prime contractor team is about 150 people working permanently only on the service module. And then the question is, if you talk about the whole Artemis team, I wouldn't know the figure, but I would guess in NASA there were uh, a few hundreds, if not thousands, working for this program. Okay. So when I'm going to see some of the technology that you guys put together for the service model in my home, when can I use your solar panel to power my fridge? Well, first of all, I don't think you couldn't pay the solar panel. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I called Nico after the interview and I asked him to explain me why the solar panel for a space mission are so much more expensive than normal solar panel that you put on the roof of your condo. It must be obvious for someone working in the field, but it wasn't so much for me. He said that terrestrial solar cells have an efficiency of about 15%, whereas solar cells for space application have about the double efficiency, lower mass, and are actually radiation protected. And this obviously increases the cost. Well, I, I must say, to, to have a direct application of service module technologies for uh, terrestrial application I don't think so, because as I have explained, the service module is a propulsion module. On propulsion module, we are not, let's say, making technology uh, leaps every day. And we are building it a lot of on, on, on heritage to have a very reliable module. I think what is, what is more important is that where the destination where the service module goes, which is um, either the gateway or helping at the end to go to lunar mm -hmm. surface, 
I think these are the the, the locations where we can look for technologies and the new technologies, which will eventually bring some spin-offs for terrestrial applications. Do you think that a potential shift in how the moon is treated or how the moon is perceived, like if it's going to turn from a cold rock to an actual economically exploitable surface, this is going to change the dynamic of the space industry or the games between the different agencies and the different players on Earth? Well, I say that what I'm saying now is a very personal answer, what I believe. So I believe that the, the resources, the lunar resources, might be used to build, for example, an infrastructure on lunar surface and potentially allow to produce fuel for missions which go farther, like for Mars, I do not believe that the resources found on Moon will be used as terrestrial resources or will replace terrestrial resources. Mainly also, first of all, I don't know which resources that should be and it would be very expensive to bring them down to Earth. However, the technology development of lunar in situ resources may, may well lead to spin-offs at the end for terrestrial applications. And, and, that, and therefore, it might have some impacts on the, let's say, terrestrial economic situation but this is very personal no, of course of course judgment. this is what i was searching for for a personal opinion regarding the matter so what do you expect from this first mission from what's the best output that could happen so the first artemis mission is uncrewed lunar flyby so we want to let's say know exactly that the systems are working and that we want to test this in a flight without crew not putting Uh, any risk on them. The first mission is uh, designed to last between 26 and 42 days. It depends a bit on the launch window and the launch day. It will be nevertheless a lunar flyby, which will bring at least a vehicle which can be crewed to a point which is uh, as remote as never done before. So in that respect, it is a kind of a first achievement. This first crew module does not yet contain an environmental uh, life support system because there is no crew on board. It's not needed. But otherwise, all major systems will be tested during this first flight, so which will give us a good confidence uh, for the second flight. And what is also a very specific focus for the first mission is the uh, capsule heat shield, because on ground we could never test a high entry velocity re-entry test at this speed. So this can only be achieved through a flight speed, uh, through a flight test. So this is a specific point of focus for this first mission. Well, then the second mission obviously will be a crewed mission. It will last about 10 days. It will be what is called hybrid free return trajectory. So it is still a mission which uh, has nothing to do with lunar surface. It's still, let's say, to test uh, the Orion spacecraft in its crewed configuration. And this uh, flight is currently scheduled for 2024. You're going to be nervous on the day of the launch. At the moment, I'm nervous for the first flight and I keep my nervousness for the second one for a later point in time. Yeah. All my best of luck. I don't know if this is the right thing to say to someone that is just about to fly such a big, because it's big also. I saw it is a full house height, uh, the service uh, the service module. It's not small. Well, well, the service module doesn't come alone. Uh, the service module come together with a capsule and uh, both together are yeah close to 9, 10 meters. Yeah. Best of luck, Nico. Thanks a lot for being uh, being with us today. And obviously, I hope that we'll have the chance to interview again afterwards, so maybe next year when we approach 
the manned mission to know what is the evolution of the European model and what's the evolution of ESA in the role of uh, uh, lunar exploration. Thanks a lot. Okay, thank you. Thanks for having the occasion talking to you. <laughs> This was the end of our third episode of Waiting for Artemis 1. Do not miss the next episode because the countdown for Artemis has basically already started and next and final episode will close the curtain of the show in flaming glory because we're going to talk about, guess what? Yes, about Orion, the actual spaceship that will take us to the moon and back. So please don't miss out our last day together. And in the meantime, please keep listening to Space Cafe Radio, all the regional space cafes, and all the talks and videos that Space Watch prepares and packs for you freshly every day. You know where to find us because we are on the web at spacewatch.global. We're on YouTube and all our podcasts are now listed on Spotify and Apple Music. So you don't have excuses. We are everywhere. I'm Emma and see you next week for the closing episode of Artemis One. Ciao.